Father, thank you for this absolutely beautiful day that you gave us. Thank you for waking us up. Thank you for the sun, the sky, the breeze, the birds. Thank you for this life that you've given us. And thank you for the new life that you've made available through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we move and teach through these words today, Father, we pray that you impact us and stir in us transformation that you desire. In fact, church, I invite you to pray this with me. Say, today, Lord, as I receive your word, help me to see what you want me to see. Hear what you want me to hear. Learn what you want me to learn. And live out what you want me to live out. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, welcome again to CVC today. We're so glad that you're here. Welcome all our online viewers right now with us. We're grateful that you're tuning in. If you're a guest today, we're so grateful that you're with us. And especially if you are returning from sports camp, it's been a great week. Had a thousand kids running around and just phenomenal time of kids learning about Christ and coming to Christ. Thank you to all of you who helped make that happen. But uh, we are definitely glad that you are with us if you're returning back from sports camp. You know, the verses we just heard is from a book in the Bible called Galatians. And Galatians was uh, written uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God used a man named the Apostle Paul to write to a bunch of Christians gathered uh, in ancient modern-day Turkey in a region called Galatia. And that's the series we've been going through right now is this book of Galatians. And we're going to continue today by turning to Galatians chapter 5, verses 1. So I'm going to invite you to open up your Bibles and your Bible apps on your devices to Galatians 5.1. And Galatians 5.1 is a great summary of the whole book of Galatians. It's also one of the memory verses that we've challenged you to take on uh, during this series. It's so valuable to lock God's word into our mind and hearts. We memorize song lyrics and phrases and things for school, but we've got to memorize God's word and put it in our head and put it in our hearts to keep us on track and growing in the Lord. And so this is Galatians 5.1. Uh, some of you that have been coming for weeks should have this uh, getting locked in. If you're new, you get a chance today. But let's say it together. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, it is a memory verse, so let's see how well you guys do if we take a few words out. Ready? Here we go. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Nicely done. I think you guys are ready to do a little bit more. Ready? Here we go. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Awesome. I think you guys are ready for the next level. You ready? Here we go. Let's do this together. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Give yourselves a hand. That was awesome. You guys are great. Galatians has this theme of freedom. That's the reason we call the series Liberated. God offers us freedom from sin and from thinking that we have to uh, earn the salvation of our souls through good works and religious activity. So as Christians, we've been liberated by the grip of sin, uh, from the grip of sin, to walk by the Holy Spirit. And as Pastor Josh illustrated last week, you know, we come into this life, we're really enslaved and enchained, and we're enchained by our sins, all our sinful actions and attitudes and thoughts, you know, we're, we're enchained to those, and typically we default to a works mindset 
where we've been either instructed or kind of taken on really what most of the world religions say is you've got to work your way to heaven. I've got, to, I've, got to, I've got to do something for the forgiveness of sins. I've got to earn it. I've got to achieve it. I've got to somehow, you know, work off my sins. And that's an enslaving uh, mindset. And what's happened is when you put your faith in Christ, he frees you. He frees you from the chains that hold us and then lets us walk in the freedom that we have in Christ. That's why our freedom is found only in Christ. Because uh, Jesus Christ is the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave. He, he's the sinless one who came and took the sins of mankind upon himself to the cross. And because of what Jesus did, we can be freed by faith in him. We're not freed by ourselves. We're not freed by religion. We're not freed by works. We're not freed by uh, world spirituality or human psychology or philosophy. Faith in Christ frees us. It's Jesus who liberates us from the chains we wear. And today we're going to see in Galatians 5 how faith in Christ frees us from two bad paths to one really good path. And so we first see that faith in Christ frees us from legalistic religion. Now just to review for those of you who've been here or on-ramp those of you who are newer, uh, what's going on here in Galatians and what the early Christians in that first century church were struggling with is this group of people have come into the church called the Judaizers. And they're saying, oh, it's, it's good to believe in Jesus, that's great, but that's not enough. You also need to fulfill all the Jewish laws and requirements and cultural customs, especially circumcision for men. That was evidence that you truly were saved. This is what was going on in the Galatian church. And so, obviously, uh, this is not what Jesus taught. This is not what the Bible teaches. This is not the gospel or the good news. So God is using this apostle Paul to confront that. Uh, let's work our way through the verses and see how that's done. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and by the way, that's just a trigger word that really captures all Jewish law, Jewish practices, Jewish customs, and circumcision. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And so what we've been seeing for seven weeks now is Paul keeps pushing against this argument and this message that if someone wants to be made right with God, and the, big, the biblical term we keep seeing here is justified. You are justified, be, you're made right with God uh, through faith in Christ. But he's pushing against the message that you have to be justified through works, through circumcision and anything else. And so in order for that to happen, if, if we're going to be justified by works, we've got to get 100%. It's 10 out of 10. There's no margin for error to break one spiritual law or rule, and we know that's impossible. And because it's impossible for us, that's exactly why God sent his son Jesus into the world, because he alone lived the perfect life. He did get the 100% because he had divine nature. And so that's why the death of Christ did for mankind what mankind could never do for themselves, he paid the penalty for our sin, and he freed us not just from sin, he freed us from this course of being a legalistic, religious person. And instead, he allowed us to become recipients of grace and forgiveness that Jesus offers. And so Paul's really pointing out here that if we have to contribute even a small fraction 
to our own salvation that now we are looking at the cross of Jesus and going, it wasn't good enough. Christ has no advantage to us if we bring anything to our salvation. And if Christ brings nothing to our salvation, then his death on the cross was insufficient and the death of Jesus is just another sad story of a martyr who died for his cause. But we know that's not true. And that's why this next verse, verse 4, is so heavy and so necessary to understand. Verse 4, we see the argument continued. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. What Paul's saying here is you, anyone, referring to uh, people who are trusting in anything else other than faith alone in Christ alone. He says, if you're not trusting in Jesus Christ alone and faith alone, then you've been severed from Christ or separated from Christ. And if we've been severed from Christ, separated from Christ, then we've been severed and separated from salvation because it's only through Christ that salvation of our souls comes. And so if that person's been severed, why is it? Because they've fallen away from grace, meaning that they are now trusting in human works not God's grace. And when we start to trust in our own efforts, here's an, uh, essentially what we're saying. We are our own Savior. If we don't believe that Jesus is the Savior, then if we're trying to earn our way to heaven, earn our way to forgiveness of God through our own efforts, then we're basically saying we're our own Savior and God doesn't accept that. If you add works, you lose Christ. Say that with me. If you add works you lose Christ. It's as simple as that. And Galatians 5.4, by the way, is one of those pet verses that people use for an argument that you can lose your salvation. That if you, you know, sin one too many times or, you know, whatever criteria that at some point God will boot you out, the Bible doesn't teach that. That's not what's being taught here. What is being taught here is that anyone looking for salvation of their souls, forgiveness from God, through their own works instead of Jesus, isn't saved. It's a turning away from the offer of grace. It's a falling away of the grace that God has offered through Christ. And so if you profess Christ as your Savior with your mouth, but inside the very core of your being, you still believe, oh, it's good that I accepted Christ, I prayed to Christ, I professed Christ, but in your core you still believe, I've got to say certain prayers. I've got to fulfill certain sacraments. I have to do certain religious duties. I have to do certain religious works. That's what it means to fall away from grace because you're not trusting in grace. You're trusting in yourself and your works. And so it's not, as we've been saying, Jesus plus anything, fill in the blank. Salvation is Jesus. It's not Jesus plus anything. And that's what the Bible teaches. So no one's justified. No one's forgiven. No one is made righteous through human effort. Now, do you see how freeing that is? That's so freeing for us that God has, uh, has unshackled us from having to try to earn and achieve forgiveness. Instead, it's just a matter of receiving and believing. It's receiving and believing, not earning and achieving. This is what, all again, Paul continues to hammer home over and over and over again. And as we start to get that, it starts to fuel this understanding of who God is. It fuels an understanding of what God's done. And it fuels an understanding of how he sees us and what he's provided for us. And it fuels a greater love for God because of it. What's the outcome? Look at verse 5. This is beautiful. 
It says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Everyone say faith. faith. Say spirit. spirit. Say righteousness. righteousness. See, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our belief and trust in who he is and what he did on the cross, the Holy Spirit of God comes to live in us and dwell in us. And then the righteousness that, of Jesus is then applied to us. It's given to us. It's the biblical word imputed. The righteousness of Christ has been imputed or applied to us because we don't have it on ourselves. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's think about it this way and illustrate it this way. One day, all of us, We'll be face-to-face with God. And we're going to be face-to-face with a holy, perfect, just God. And we're going to have to answer for our life and for what we believe and for what we did. Now, the Bible says that that moment is going to be the moment where we will move into one of two. The Bible only talks about two eternal destinations. We either will go to heaven to be with the Lord forever, or we're going to go to hell for eternal punishment. And here's the reality. The reality is, if we appear that day wearing and shackled in chains of our sin, that we've rejected Jesus. No, I got this, God. I'm good. You know? And we just reject Jesus. This is how we're going to appear before God. If we decide that it's all about works, it's all about what I can do. Hey, God, I've got this. Thanks for the cross. I was cute and all. But, but really, it's about what I've got to do. And we appear before God like this, if there's only one or two destinations, which destination are we going to go to? It's a question. Which destination? You almost say it like you don't believe it's real. Where? Hell. Hell. If, we're, if we're still shackled in our sin, if we're still shackled thinking we've got to earn our way to heaven, this is how we're going to appear before God. He's going, depart from me, I never knew you. And we're not going to spend eternity with the Lord. So that's one reality. But if we understand what God's done, once we come to Christ, and he imputes that Christ, uh, righteousness of Christ to us, what he has done is he has wrapped us in the righteousness of Christ. This is what happens when you put your faith in Christ, is he takes the righteousness of Jesus and he wraps you in the righteousness of Christ. And now you're going to stand before God, and when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That's, that's so freeing. And it's so interesting because if, if, you, if you work in theology, it would be like this. Hey, look, let's take a poll. If you're righteous, raise your hand. And you guys go, uh, it's not me. We know. We know we're sinful. We know we're dirty. We know. But when you come to Christ... And when you put your faith in Jesus and the righteousness of Christ now wraps you, let's, let's think about it a little more you know, deeply now. If you are a Christian, raise your hand if you're righteous in Christ. Yes. We don't generate righteousness. We don't get out our knitting needles and start to try to like make something, wrap ourselves in. You know what I'm saying? It's something that only God can give, and he gives the righteousness of Christ to us and wraps us in Christ's righteousness. That's why, look at verse 5 again. Now verse 5 takes on a whole nother meaning when it says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope 
of righteousness. You know, one day when we stand before God, wrapped in his righteousness, that's our hope. We know it's coming. He says, welcome home. No more sin, no more death, no more sickness. And the battle for sin that you've been fighting for your whole life is gone. Your sanctification is now full and complete. Welcome home. That's our hope of righteousness, that in that moment, we're going to be declared righteous by God because he sees the blood of Christ for those who have faith, who have taken that step. That's what that means. And so when we understand this, being accepted, being forgiven by God is based on his character, not ours. It's based on who God is, not who we are. That's why we see what we see in verse six. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul's going, look, I don't have an issue with circumcision. Paul was Jewish, right? When the, much of the early church was Jewish. They don't have an issue with circumcision and all the, the Jewish uh, culture and customs as much. It's now when you say circumcision is required, the issue was that it was becoming a requirement. Now he's got issue. So when you translate that to us, works is not the issue for us. See, when we're saved by Christ for works. Jesus saved us and then releases us to do good works. We've been saved by Christ for works, but we're not saved by works. So we don't have an issue with works. We love doing good works. Like 300 people served last week at sports camp. I don't think it was because like, oh man, I better serve a sports camp or God's gonna smite me, you know? I hope that wasn't anyone's motivation. I think it was, I love God, I love kids, I, I just I don't want to be used. It fuels this love for God, which just changes our view on works. Now, the Galatian churches had this understanding. This is how they started out of the blocks. But the Judaizers come in and started mixing up the message a little bit. They confused them. Look again at verses 7 through 10. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I love this like, expression of confidence he says next. He goes, I've got confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Since the early church, false teachers have risen up and have introduced false teaching into Christianity. It's nothing new. Today, we know there are countless false spiritual leaders today that have distorted the Bible. They've twisted theology. They've introduced dangerous yet appealing teachings. And what does those teachings do? They either divert people on the front end away from the truth of Jesus, basically falling away from grace, or they kind of, that leaven, like it gets into the dough to make the bread rise, like leaven, it gets into the church, it gets into the body, and when that gets into the body, this false teaching, it dilutes our growth spiritually, and it dilutes our potency when we're trying to share Christ. And so Paul's trying to guard the church here. He's got a jealousy for the church. And so that's why we, as pastors and spiritual leaders, are always cautioning you, be careful which books you're reading, be careful whose voices you're listening to. There are well-known, popular, spiritual teachers and leaders that are teaching off base. And it might feel good. You're welcome. Hey, it might feel good. It might sound good. The Bible says in the end times, people are going to come with teaching that tickles the ears. It's nice. And people are going to go like, I like the sound of that. We used the word hell earlier. We go, we don't like the sound of that. Well, that's the Bible. The hell is real. We, we, have, to, we have to reckon with that. 
right? But there'll be people out there like, well, see, metaphorically speaking, see, there's only no place of hell. And we go, yeah, that sounds nicer. I think I'll just go ahead and believe that. So you've got to be careful who you're listening to, who you're uh, watching, uh, what spiritual leaders you're speaking to your life, even family members, well-meaning family members that will impose spiritual beliefs that are not biblical. It's leaven. It gets in there and it can mess up you, your family, and, and church if it goes to the extreme. And God doesn't take false teaching lightly. Look what we see here. It says, the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty. What does that mean? It means they're at risk for losing their souls. God tells us through the apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.1. He says, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will, and it says secretly, right? This is kind of on the down low, this is sly, right? Who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. Isn't that just sickening to know that there's teaching out there that absolutely goes against the very one who died on the cross for their sins. And it says here that it will be bringing upon themselves swift, what's the word? Destruction. We're not talking about heaven here. This isn't a slap on the wrist. False teachers are going to experience eternal punishment. And so the devil uses false teachers to lure people off the path of biblical truth to hell. And it's a stark and sad realization that false teachers uh, will be going to hell. They don't trust in Christ. But here's the thing. We don't have to go with them. Our loved ones don't have to go with them. Our neighbors and friends and coworkers and the people that we interact with don't have to go with them. We've been freed. And we've been free not just from this legalistic religion, but from, from others who also are still trapped to go and help them be freed from it. And if we do, it's not always going to be warmly received. Look at verse 11. Paul says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. See, what happened was the Judaizers started using Paul as like a token. Like, hey, see, he's, he's all about circumcision. He's okay with it. Paul's going, time out here. If, I, if I'm preaching circumcision, if I'm preaching works, if I'm preaching, preaching a works-based religion, why am I being persecuted? He was being persecuted because he was teaching faith alone and Christ alone. And so the second you step out as a Christian... And whether it's, you know, coffee shop conversation, water cooler conversation, over the mailbox with your neighbor conversation, once you say anything that's a, basically, hey, look, you've got to have faith alone in Christ alone, it's not, it, there's going to be backlash. There's going to be backlash. You would not be persecuted for teaching works. Paul isn't going to be persecuted for teaching works. It's easily accepted. Most religions, if not all, other than Christianity, teach you've got to work. You've got to do something. But the second we say it's in Christ alone, it's offensive. It says right here that the offense of the cross has been removed. What do you mean the cross is offensive? Think about this for a second. The cross steals from man's pride. Because there's still something inside of us, whether we want to admit it or not, there's still something inside of us that wants to earn salvation. We want to add a boy from God. We want to pat on the back from other people. We want to feel good about ourselves. We want to puff up our chest and go, look what I did. Look how many prayers I said. Look how many sacraments I took. Look how many mission trips I took. Look how many times I went to church. Look how much money I put in the offering. Like, whatever it is, there's something inside of us that wants to say, I did something to earn my salvation and forgiveness. And then you look at the cross, and the cross goes, you didn't do jack. Jesus did everything. Some of you haven't come to Christ because your pride won't let you. 
you look upon the cross and you have this conflict because if you believe in Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, you have to confess you can't do anything to get to heaven. Well, well, time out. I can believe in Jesus. You're right. Who gave you the ability to believe? Oh, yeah, that came from God too. We've got nothing. We're just recipients. We're recipients of this amazing grace that God gives. And Paul is zealous about this. He's trying to break this through because these people are leading them astray. And then he says something so graphic and so extreme in verse 12. Some of you heard it in the reading earlier and went, huh? What's that mean? Verse 12 says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Led by this uh, fierce devotion to the simple truth of the gospel, Paul's disdain for anyone who's going to try to add anything to it comes out. And for those who are so insistent, he's saying, that circumcision is required for salvation, then go to the wall with your religious extreme for works. He said, okay, you think circumcision is required? Let me get this straight. If cutting off a little flesh pleases God and cutting off a little flesh makes you more righteous, then wouldn't cutting off more please God even more? And make you even more righteous? Well, shoot, man, forget circumcision. Just castrate yourself. Take your zealous devotion to works to the extreme. If we were to try to kind of rework that for us, maybe it's like, oh, yeah, baptism's required? Go drown yourself. Because if a little dunk in the water is going to do it, then, man, God's really going to love you if you die drowning in the water. Oh, fasting's required? Starve yourself to death. You know, a little, a, little, a little skipping some meals, that's good. That, God loves that. Well, then don't eat anything until you die, until you wake up and go, look, Jesus, I fasted until I came to heaven. He's saying, take it to the wall. Did you see what he's saying? Oh, communion's required. Well, then you better just eat and drink yourself into a coma. Like, this is what the spirit of what he's saying is. And he's, why is he doing this? To point out how ridiculous and illogical it is to trust in works. Jesus did it all. Jesus did everything. And so this is freedom. This is freedom. We've been freed from this legalistic religion. Look, we've had conversations with some of you. It's still in the basement, right? Oh, man, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love the cross. Love, but, you know, I'm still trying to work my way. Well, time out. Where did that come from? Like, it's still in the basement somewhere. Like, I've got to do something. No, you don't. Just rest in believing in Jesus and walk free. He's freed you from legalistic religion. And he's also freed you from a license to sin. See, this is where people go to the other extreme. You got some people over here trapped, enslaved, chained to like, ah, oh, I got to do something. And then you got these other people over here going, huh, I said a prayer when I was five. I don't have to do anything now. I can sin it up. I can do whatever I want. And Jesus will forgive me, right? Well, look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the what? Flesh, meaning our cravings and our urgings and our sinful nature. Those little desires to rebel. And so faith in Christ does not give us a pass to indulge in sin or to live with unrepentant sin or to abuse God's grace. Our freedom in Christ lets us walk without guilt, without shame, without fear of eternal condemnation, but we are still to live lives pleasing to God according to the moral standard that he's embedded in us and according to the moral standard he's given in his word. So yes, being accepted and forgiven by God is based on his character, not ours, but it still changes our character. It still makes us live new in Christ. 
And so we don't become sinless, but we start to sin less because Christ is transforming us. He's sanctifying us. He's making us more and more like him. So if you love Jesus and you've come to Christ, you will see sin differently than before you knew Christ. And you will feel the effects of sin in your spirit differently than before you knew Christ. And you'll start to learn to hate sin unlike any way you did before you knew Christ. So Christ's forgiveness doesn't give us an unlimited access to dine at the world's buffet of sin. And so we've got these over here trapped in the chains of legalism, and you've got these trapped in the chains of license. I can do what I want when I want, which is not true. Jesus said in John 8 that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And he's not called us to be slaves. Now, we do need to make a distinction here because this is where people start to get freaked out. Like, uh, I know how I talked to my spouse on the way to church. I know what I said to my kids. So, oh man, if I, if I messed up, like, am I out? Has God disqualified me? Is this like game over? What's going on here? So we need to make a distinction here between the believer who still has a sin nature that they fight with every day. Because as a believer, there's going to be wins and losses. There's going to be victories and, and failures. And there's going to be conviction and there's going to be consequences. But we still are trying to grow in our Christ-likeness. That's different. It's different as a believer who, who gets knocked down and back up, and knocked down and back up, and is still moving forward and growing in Christ. But there's a difference between another person who at one point in their life professed Jesus, but then when you look at their life, there's zero evidence of Christ. Now, ultimately, we're not called to, to, to make a, a, a call on that, right? That's not our role to call. That's God's. But it does bring question marks at time. And so we can't be fooled into thinking that if someone said, oh, yeah, I said a prayer or I did something really spiritual a long time ago, so I'm good, is actually good. Because if Christ is in you, you will become more like Christ. And so my brother or sister, if you're in Christ today and you're living a life of disobedience, you're living a life of rebellion, and you're thinking, you know, God doesn't really care. He cares. He cares how you treat your spouse. He cares about your character. He cares about those things. And even though maybe as a believer your eternity is secure, there still will be consequences for your sin. You, you can't sin it up without consequences. And he'll let things happen in your life day to day, whether it's your reputation, whether it's the health of your body, whether it's you know, resources, whatever it is. The most tragic loss is we feel far from God. But then there's this whole other group that if they don't really know the Lord, they're in danger. And the Bible talks about that in 1 John 3. God said through the Apostle John, no one who abides in him, no one who's in Christ, right, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he's righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. And so what this is saying is clearly those who know Christ don't learn to practice sin. They don't let their lives be dominated by sin. They don't dedicate themselves to learning how to master their sin. If you truly know Christ, you're not going to learn how to lie better, steal better, use other people better. You're not going to continue to grow and just trying to experience the pleasures outside of God's boundaries that you want to experience. 
If your life summary, if your internal life motto is, I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want, there's reason for a question mark about your soul. Because when you come to Christ, that stuff becomes a battle that you depart from. It might take a long time for some people. Sometimes it's quicker for others. But you depart from that. You don't become enslaved by that. And so for the person who's like, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, when I want, guess what? There's no robe of righteousness in Christ. You're still a slave. You're still a slave. But when we have Christ in our life, he's given us the freedom through the Holy Spirit to break through that stuff. We'll talk about that next week. Because in Galatians 5.16, it talks about those who walk by the Spirit will not obey the cravings, the desires of the Spirit. We'll talk a little bit more about how God's given us the ability to overpower our sinful urges. But if you're here today, and you're hearing all this, and you're going, I don't think I know Christ. I don't have a relationship with Christ. Guess what? You can have that relationship today. You don't have to be mastered by your sin. You don't have to be enslaved by your sin. You can receive God's offering of forgiveness, relationship, grace, heaven, eternity, and freedom. All you got to do is tell God about it. Say, God, I'm lost. I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm coming to you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I believe he rose from the grave to give me eternal life. I'm, I'm turning today. I'm running to you, God, not away from you. And if you do that, let us know so we can come alongside you and help you grow. In your response card, there's a box that you can just say, I'm giving my life to Christ. Fill that out and turn it in in the baskets that come by at the end of the service and we'll come alongside you to help you experience more of the liberating power that Christ offers our lives. So he, 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 his freedom gets us off two bad paths. Off the, the, frees us from the, the, the um, legalistic religion and it frees us from a license to sin. But it frees us to a life of love. Jesus frees us to a life of love. This is where we see what Pastor Josh mentioned last week is really a pivot point from theology to applied theology, from what we understand to what we live out. Now, I already shared from verse 6 how our freedom in Christ fuels our love for God. When, when, when we're wrapped in the robe of Christ, then, then we've been freed to love God more, but we've also been freed to love others more. Look again at verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through, what's the word? Love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so the freedom that we have in Christ and, the, and being robed in Christ frees us to love people differently. And as we're in Christ, we become less selfish, more selfless. And we don't start to add works of love to our faith, our faith starts to produce works of love. And so we see people differently and we start to see tangible needs that they have. We start to pray about those needs. We start to apply generosity to those needs. We start to uh, dedicate ourselves to acts of service for those needs because God's given us love for other people. Our freedom fuels a love for others. And that's exactly what God wants from us. Romans 13.8 puts it this way, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So let's now apply what the Old Testament and New Testament are saying as they meld together. So when you look at the Old Testament law, everything before Christ, all right, if you were to take a little cross-section of that law, you find the Ten Commandments. If you take a little cross-section from the Ten Commandments and focus on the commandments that really only pertain to how we treat other people, if we love people, 
with the love that Christ has given us, we're going to automatically obey those commandments. Love fulfills the law. So think about it. If uh, I love my parents, then I'm going to honor and obey them. If I love others, I won't murder them. That's kind of an important one, right? If I love my spouse, I won't commit adultery. If I love others, I'm not going to steal from them. If I love the other people, I'm not going to lie to them. If I love other people, I'm not going to covet or lust uh, what they have because I love people. And the freedom in Christ fuels that kind of love. So let's think about it this way. When you think about the person who's still chained, uh, who's going to love better? Who's, who's going to be the better spouse, parent, child, coworker, boss, neighbor? Who's going to love better? The person still wrapped in the chains of their sin or in legalistic thinking or the person who's been wrapped and robed in the righteousness of Christ? I mean, isn't this the spouse that you want to be? Isn't this the spouse that you want to marry? Isn't this the parent that we'd like to be? Wrapped in righteousness and loving our kids different or the kind of kid you want to be that you wrapped in the righteousness of Christ and it affects the way you treat your parents? Neighbor, friend, coworker, boss, who's going to love better? Clearly the one wrapped and robed in the righteousness of Christ has been imputed, given, applied to them. This fuels us to love others better. And if we don't, then the opposite is waiting for us. When we don't love each other, then we start to bite and devour. The imagery here is of wild animals, ruthlessly attacking and biting and even eating one another. So a lot of times when people see Christianity and see a church, that's the image in their mind. They know about some of the fights, the conflicts, the battles, the views, the venom that comes out of the church. And they go, oh, you want me to come to church with you? No, thank you. Oh, you want me to believe what you believe? <laughs> no, thank you. Because they see this biting and devouring. This is not what God's called us to. This is not freedom in Christ. This is not a love fueled by freedom. Instead, we turn to bite and devour. See, if we focus on Christ who unites us, then we'll avoid all the other things that we can focus on that will divide us. If we don't focus on Christ who unites us, whatever our background, if we don't focus on Christ who unites us, then we'll start to drift into thinking and fixating on the things that divide us. Sometimes it's the silly little things. Well, I don't like that song. I don't like those instruments. I don't like that Bible translation. I don't like the way that person dresses. We find silly little things that divide us because you're not focusing on Christ. Or we go to the more harmful big issues, ethnicity, political leanings, uh, financial brackets, etc. And we start to you know, find superiority and inferiority there. That's not freedom in Christ. That's biting and devouring. Let me give you a real example, and I'm not making this up. Two weeks ago, I was sitting in my office with a person in this church that's been coming for a while. And a couple months ago, they were walking down one of the halls. And all of a sudden, they turned abruptly to go a different direction and bumped into someone of a different ethnicity. And they said, excuse me. And the other person looked at them and says, you don't even belong here anyway. And I was like, what? I'm thinking, how did that person feel in that moment? And as a pastor of the church, like, how do you think I felt in that moment? You know, I'm like, oh, it's on. Who are they? Where are they? They go, find this person. Because that's not freedom in Christ. 
That's not a picture of the church that God has for us to be. And so that's biting and that's devouring. Look, everybody's welcome here, but as Christ is changing us, those attitudes, like if that's anyone's attitude, like, hey, man, I, based on ethnicity, financial background, political leaning, whatever, I can't, I refuse, I will not love, then, then this just isn't the church for those people. Because this church is going to operate in the freedom of Christ and the love of Christ. That's what God has called us to. Yeah, absolutely. Praise God, because that's who he's made us to be. Don't forget what Jesus said in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give you, not a suggestion, a commandment that you love one another just as I loved you and you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We're commanded as we've been wrapped and free. You know the image that people should have when they think of church? is something more like this. They see God's flock. Yeah, oh, isn't that cute? <laughs> it's kind of funny to teach up here because like, you show the dogs and people are like, ugh, you know? You show the sheep like, aw. <laughs> but yes, this is, oh, you want to invite me to church? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. Well, tell me more about what you believe. This, this is a picture of loving others like Christ loved us. Jesus has freed us and that freedom fuels us to love like that, Amen. I want to give you a couple things to think about as you prepare to leave here. One, the life message is that freedom fuels love. Just know that. The freedom of Christ we have fuels love. But let's get specific. It fuels our love for God. One question I'd love for you to process and answer is this as an application. Because I'm free in Christ, I will express my love for God this week by, and then fill in the blank. You don't do this to get love from God. You do this because you love God. What do you need to do or not do? To just express your love for God. And then just commit yourself to that this week and beyond, really. But let's start with the week. You know, start small. Also, that freedom fuels us to love other people. So the second question, because I'm free in Christ, I will express my love for others this week by what? What will you do or not do? Parents, kids, maybe someone at work, someone you've been struggling with. And Christ has freed you. That freedom will fuel you to treat them different. And so think about that and pray about that and answer that. Also, again, an application for those of you who don't know Christ. Don't forget. And if you're coming to Christ for the first time, just tell the Lord what you've heard. Mark that indication in your response card. Turn it in. But here's what I want to do. I just want to celebrate. Like freedom should make us celebrate. So I want to invite you to stand for a minute, okay? Stand with me, please. Christ has set us free to love God more to love others more. So let's stand in that freedom. And so let's right now just go into a time of just celebrating that through song, through worship, through music, and celebrate the freedom we have in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen.